Everyone wants it. It's the thing that fuels all that we do. It's the thing that stimulates courage and perseverance. It's what gets you through tough times and keeps you from quitting. It's hard to be happy and hard to get up and continue when you don't have any of it. What is it? Hope, of course. Everyone craves hope. Those words come from Paul Tripp. He's a pastor and author, and I think he's absolutely right. We all crave hope. We all want to know that something better is ahead. If you've been to the grocery store recently, you know there's this Monopoly prize game going on. If you buy certain products, you get little tokens, and uh, just like the board game Monopoly, you match up the tokens together and you can win a prize. Anybody playing Monopoly game? A couple of people, all right. A couple of people that are not going to admit it, I guess. But, uh, you know, there's all kinds of prizes you can win. Uh, everything from groceries to computers to cash to televisions, college tuition, uh, home renovations, all kinds of things that you can hope for. You can fill up your bank account to overflowing with all the prizes that they have to offer. And uh, we got a big family. We buy a lot of groceries, so we got a lot of these little coupons running around the house. And, you know, the way these games work, these contests work, is they get you all excited, that you see pictures of the prizes, and you start to imagine yourself in that dream house, or, or sailing that yacht, or spending all that money, right? You start to get excited. You start to hope. Hope that, that you might be the one to get that winning ticket, And you think, oh man, I need to get those pieces. I need to keep shopping, keep working for that. Before you know it, you're practically spending that money already. You look at your own bank account and you just think, how much better would it be if? But we all know the stories of people who hit that jackpot, who who win the lottery and end up miserable, right? Everybody's chasing the easy win, the easy money, the big payoff. Ultimately, everybody's craving hope. But maybe for you, maybe you're too smart for all that kind of stuff. You aren't hoping to win a free TV or free groceries, but you still hope. You're hoping for something. Maybe you're just hoping for a change, hoping that that something's different down the road, hoping that, that for once things will really work out the right way. Maybe you know that your problems are so big that just getting a new TV or getting a few groceries aren't going to help. Maybe you're hoping for a miracle. But what if there was a way to get the big jackpot payout without all this work? What if there was a way to get something of infinite worth and you didn't have to do anything for it? What if there was a way to get all your hope fulfilled even more than you could imagine? We're in a series studying the book of Titus in Titus chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up to Titus 3. And there's a phrase In Titus 3, a phrase that occurs a few times in the Bible, and it points to something that is a sure bet, uh, a guarantee, something that is hope fulfilled. You can see the phrase in Titus 3, verse 8, right here. This is a trustworthy saying. And if you stop and think about it, it kind of makes you laugh a bit, because hopefully everything in the Bible is a trustworthy saying, you know? But 
Uh, but for some reason, it's emphasized here. And this phrase shows up five different times in what we call the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These, these books by Paul, he, he wrote these books, and he uses that phrase five times in these three books. And I noted in your sermon notes the places where this occurs, in case you're curious. And, and there's been books upon books written about these, these trustworthy sayings that Paul mentions and uh, these phrases that he singles out to emphasize. It's not always clear uh, what's the trustworthy saying, like which verses is he referring to when he uses that phrase. So sometimes it's, it's not easy to understand. And people debate, what's the purpose of Paul using this phrase? Why does he single out this little passage or that passage? And lots and lots of books written about these trustworthy sayings. But for our purpose... The key is just to know that these, these trustworthy sayings, like we see right here, they're, they're things that are true. They're beyond debate. They're, they're based on the clear teaching of Jesus or his disciples. They're something like, uh, like traditional phrases or, or at least traditional ideas. And Paul uses this phrase basically to emphasize something really important. So the best way I know to think about it is to, to think about a something my great uncle used to say all the time. When he would hear something like this, a phrase that you just know is true, he would say, that'll preach. Right? It's the kind of thing that makes you just say, amen, when you hear it. It's a trustworthy saying, amen. You could take it to the bank. So what in this passage is trustworthy? Well, if you were here last week, you know we talked about the very beginning of Titus 3. We talked about who we are, and we talked about who we were. In verse 3, there's this description of who we were, what we used to be like before Jesus changed our lives. Take a look at verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So that's who we were, how we used to live. And it's not pretty. But God didn't leave us like that. God didn't abandon us in our sin. And just as God has not abandoned Trinity here, God is not done with us, with you, with me, with us. So this description of who we were, it's bleak. We used to be slaves to our old way of life. We used to be unable to do anything about our situation. We didn't even know how bad things were for us. We didn't know what we needed. We we craved hope. But we didn't even understand where that hope would come from. And so we we looked for hope. We looked for help in all the wrong places. We looked at people. If only this relationship was better, or if only I had that kind of person in my life, then things would be better for me. Or we looked at our circumstances. If only this thing could change, or if I could just start doing that, or stop doing this, things would be better. We looked horizontally. But listen to some more wise words from Paul Tripp. He says, The radical message of the Bible, captured well by this Titus passage, is that sturdy hope, hope that won't ever fail you or leave you embarrassed, is only found vertically. The horizontal situations, locations, experiences, and relationships of everyday life, they're dangerous places to look for hope. Why? They all fail you. There's simply no Perfectly ideal situations, no paradise locations, no completely satisfying experiences, and surely no perfect people this side of eternity. So hope that addresses your deepest needs, that gives you a reason to continue no matter how hard life is, and that promises you eternal good, 
is only ever found vertically. Maybe in those words you hear something of yourself. Maybe you've been looking for hope horizontally, looking for solutions horizontally, looking for a person, or or looking for, for this to change or that to change. Or maybe you've been resisting change, just trying to hold on to something that God really wants you to let go of. All those things are are fleeting hopes. They're only going to let us down. All those things are like little monopoly tokens. No matter how many you collect, no matter how much you hold on to them, you're not going to win. We need something that's a vertical hope. We need something trustworthy, something we can really take to the bank. So we turn to God's word. We see in this passage in Titus a trustworthy saying. You could take it to the bank. Look with me at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. So this passage is our trustworthy saying. It's something that should make all of us say, Amen. You could take it to the bank. And I want us to notice some things in this passage. I want us to notice all the things that God does in this passage. But before we notice that, just notice who's at work here. There's a beautiful picture of the Trinity at work. Uh, Just like we we were singing about earlier this morning, we see God the Father showing us kindness and mercy. We see God the Holy Spirit giving us new birth and renewal. We see God the Son justifying us, giving us hope. All the members of the Trinity are here in this passage, all doing things for us. That's who's at work on our behalf. So let's notice all the things that are done for us. First, there's kindness. God looks at who we were, foolish, disobedient, deceived, and he shows us kindness. He looks on us with love, and in fact, specifically, it's the kind of love that is shown to people in distress. That's who we were. We desperately needed kindness and love. And if that wasn't enough, God's love is active. His kindness and love, they do something for us. The passage goes on to tell us he saved us. He saved us from our our slavery to sin, all kinds of passions and pleasures. God did that for us. And he did it as an act of mercy. God showed mercy to us. We're unable to save ourselves, but God saved us. The, uh, The picture here is of God, powerful, capable, sovereign over everything. God sees us in our need and he comes to us. He saves us in a very personal way. But there's still more. The passage goes on to describe how God worked in us when he saved us. The Holy Spirit cleansed us and gave us new life. Here in just a few weeks, on uh, April 14th, we're going to celebrate with some folks who are taking the step of baptism. And baptism is a great picture of what God has done for us. He saved us and he, he cleansed us from sin. We celebrate that with baptism. And the water is a great picture of the, the washing or the cleansing that we see here in this passage. Not just washing with water. The Apostle Peter, he says, is not the removal of dirt kind of cleansing. It's, it's a cleansing that goes so much deeper, cleansing us from all of our sin. 
there's still more that God does for us. The passage goes on to tell us we were reborn. We have new life. There's a moment in the Gospel of John, in John 3, when Jesus gets a visit at night from a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a a respected religious leader, uh, both a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of Israel. And he was devoutly religious, theologically well-educated, held in high esteem by those who knew him. By any standards, he was a very good person. The kind of person who might have read this description of who we were in Titus 3.3 and said, that's not me. But his hope was all horizontal, hoping in his own accomplishments, his own abilities. And then he met Jesus. After visiting with Jesus one evening after dark, he was shocked to learn that he wasn't ready to enter the kingdom of God. What reason did Jesus give him? He'd never been born from above. He'd never been born again. He'd never experienced that miracle of new birth, the work of the Spirit of God. The Bible calls it regeneration. He needed the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. He needed vertical hope. All of us have the same need, the need to have our whole lives changed. Not just a a little bit of cleaning up, not just taking the good things that we got going and adding to it. No, we need a whole new birth, a hard reset. Not putting any hope in anything we've done or that we have. Simply coming to God like a child, unable to do anything for ourselves. We need new birth. And here in this passage, that's exactly what happens to us. Just like Nicodemus, we're reborn, we're renewed, a whole new life given to us by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came to live in us, to breathe new life in us. It's an amazing gift. And the passage goes on. It's not just a little bit of the Holy Spirit who's in us. This trustworthy saying tells us he was generously poured out on us. The whole Holy Spirit, he doesn't hold anything back. You don't need to do anything to earn more of the Holy Spirit because he's already been fully, generously poured out on us. Picture your life as a big, empty vessel. And God's just pouring it full of amazing things. And then it gets all the way full up to the top and he just keeps on pouring. The Holy Spirit lives in you, guiding you, shaping you, giving you new life, and then flowing out of you. And all that happens because of the work that Jesus has done for us. We see in this passage, Jesus justified us. That word justification, it's a legal term. It means we were declared righteous. God judges us, but because of the work that Jesus did, because he he paid the punishment for our sins, for our enslavement to sin, that we're no longer declared guilty, now we're declared righteous. We're holy. That's what Jesus has done for us, totally changed our status. But there's still more that God has done. I mean, we really hit the jackpot. The passage goes on to tell us we became heirs. We, we inherited a place in God's family. We're no longer disobedient. Now we're children of God, adopted by him, given full status as members of his family, inheriting all that he has for us. And that gives us hope, hope for the future. Finally, we have eternal life. And these are not just different ways of saying the same thing. These are all different things that God has given us through his spirit and through his son, Jesus. 
Somebody studied the Bible and came up with a list of 33 different things that God gave to us when we were saved. That's a lot of gifts. It's almost too much to believe. All these things that God was just pleased to pile on us. It changes our life. It changes our situation. And it's true. It's a trustworthy saying. Take it to the bank. The whole package is ours. Kindness, love, salvation, cleansing from sin, new life, the Holy Spirit's presence poured out on us, justified, declared righteous before God, adopted into his family, given eternal life. It's all given to us as a free gift of grace and mercy. That's a trustworthy saying. So that's all the things that God has done for us, all his work. And I think it's probably important for us to notice the part that you and I play in this. There is one part that you and I have. Look at verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. So the one thing that we did was nothing. We didn't add anything to all this great work that God did. He saved us in spite of ourselves, not because of something we did. We did nothing. God did it all. All the good in our lives is a gift of God. That's a trustworthy saying. Amen. Amen. Let me say it another way. You can take it to the bank. God has done all these things that can't be undone. Even if you turn out to be a total screw-up in your life, you can't undo these things that God has done. God did them, and you just get to cash in on them. God made all these deposits in your life, and you can take it to the bank. It's as certain as anything in your life. So if you ever wonder if God wants good things for you or or good things for our church, you don't have to wonder anymore. I mean, 33 things that God has done, zero good things that you've done, you don't have to wonder if God is in control of your life because he is. And we've learned very clearly here at Trinity, God's in control of our church. He knows what he's doing. And we can trust him. If he's done all these amazing things for us as individuals, that means he's got good things in store for us as a church. So let's keep trusting. He's trustworthy. So this trustworthy saying, this truth that you could take to the bank, it has a purpose. It's a trustworthy saying for people who trust. Look with me at the next part of the passage, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul tells, us, uh, Paul tells Titus this trustworthy saying, all these things that God has given us, and then he tells Titus why it's so important. He says to stress these things, and he gives the reason. Stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So it's a trustworthy saying with a purpose. It's for people who trust. It's a saying you could take to the bank, and then we could take it to the valley. We can turn around and do good with it. I've told you over and over about the emphasis on good works in this book of Titus. From the very beginning of the book all the way through, there's this emphasis on doing good. And here we see how it is we can even do good. We can do good because of all the good things that God has done for us. We've been given so much by God, and it's all true. Take it to the bank. And now we got the job of taking it to the valley. 
So it's not us at work. We're just channeling the good things that God has already done. We just watch him work through us. That's ultimately what good works are, us letting God work through us. So all this emphasis on good works raises a question, a question that's worth us uh, discussing for a bit. What is a good work? I mean, it seems like a simple question, but it's helpful. If we're going to take it to the valley, really live out the truth of all that God has done for us, then what does that look like? What constitutes a good work? It's an important question, so we'll answer it together. If you make cookies and you give them to your neighbor, is that a good work? Yes. If you offer to mow the lawn of somebody who lives down the street from you, is that a good work? Yes. Both of those works are simple, but they're good because they reflect what God has done for you and me and what God wants to do for everyone. They're just giving us something good for nothing. If you do something good for another person and you don't expect anything in return, that's good. Good works reflect God's grace. You may think, well, all right, I mean, those don't cost us anything, really, just a bit of time. Is that really good? Yes. Let's talk about some other examples. What if uh, you get, like, caught in the hallway at work and a coworker unloads on you? They're having a real problem. You don't know what to do about that problem, so you just do the only thing you know to do. You, You offer to pray with that person. Is that a good work? Yes. What if you're talking to somebody and they're like, oh, man, I heard about all that crazy stuff going on at your church. Wow. And you don't know what to say about that. Or maybe you do know what to say, but you decide not to say all those things, you know. Instead, you just say, hey, God is doing great stuff. It's, it's a wild ride, but we can really see God at work. Is that a good work? Yes. Because in those moments, you're pointing other people to God. He's the one who does all the work. And if that's a truth that we can take to the bank, then let's take that truth to the valley. Good works can be anything that points people to God. Good works can be planned or they can be spontaneous. They can be anonymous or not. There's really no limit to good works. Just as God has lavished us, we can live in that same kind of way with others, just lavishing them with good works. Now, are there some good works that are better than others? Of course. But a good work is a good work. God can use it all for his glory. I think sometimes we get hung up on thinking, man, I, I, I want to do that really big thing, but I can't, so we just do nothing, right? But just look at all the things that God has done for us. He's given us all the best of who he is. So if you go to the bank and you pay an anonymous house payment or car payment for some other person, is that a good work? Yeah, It costs you something, but that person, they get what they don't really deserve for free. It's an act of grace in action. They receive grace from you, but it's really from the Lord. Other examples, you go and visit a sick person and just sit with them, read to them, talk with them. Is that a good work? Yeah. Let me cut the discussion short a little bit. The answer is pretty much always yes. Yes, most any work you can think of is good. The key is just do it, just Take it to the valley. If it helps, the Bible actually gives us a grid of how to evaluate if our works are good or not. The book of Galatians lists the fruit of the Spirit, things that happen as a result of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know the list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
If your actions are motivated by those things or if they encourage others to live out those qualities, it's probably a good work. You're doing good work. You're reflecting God's grace. You're pointing people to God. So let's get out there and take it to the valley. This trustworthy saying should motivate all of us to live with the same kindness, the same love, the same mercy and grace that God has given to us. It could be as simple as just inviting a person to share a meal with you, just inviting a person into relationship. That's a reflection of how God has treated you and me. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Take advantage of opportunities that are already happening here at Trinity. I mean, there's no easier way to point somebody to God than just to invite them to church. In your worship folder this morning, you got an Easter invitation. You know, we always try to make really attractive invitations that you don't mind handing out to your friends. That's a great way to uh, invite somebody to church. And and they're all over the building. Take as many as you want. They don't really do us any good sitting around here. So get them out the door, right? But that's a good work, pointing somebody to God. There's other great things going on here at Trinity. You can get involved with our partnership at Blue Ridge Elementary. We're always looking to add people to the team of folks who serve at Blue Ridge. Remember, it's a really strategic place for us to serve because it's an intersection of the next generation and our Spanish-speaking community. Strategic. We've got so many things you can do at Blue Ridge. You can just make a meal for the staff. I mean, hardworking, underpaid teachers, they like free food. Or you can go and read with a kid. You can buy socks and underwear for kids who can't afford to buy those things on their own. You can volunteer in a classroom. There's so many easy ways to do good work related to Blue Ridge, or frankly, any school in the Valley. It doesn't really matter that much. Let me just kind of summarize this emphasis on good works with another passage from earlier in Titus. One of the other places that this book emphasizes doing good says that our doing good, our making sacrifices for the sake of others, will make the teachings of God our Savior attractive. Another translation says our good works will adorn the gospel. They make the gospel message beautiful. All the great things that God has done for us made attractive by our work. Our good works take the good news to the valley. Good works are, are how the amazing message of the gospel shows up in everyday life. So let's take it to the valley. Let's make the teaching of God attractive. There's one final part of this passage to explore. We've looked at this trustworthy saying, a saying you can really take to the bank. And we've seen this emphasis on taking it to the valley final part of the passage tells us the result. Look at verse 8 again. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So this verse ends telling us that these things are profitable for everyone. So you can take it to the bank and you can turn a profit. And the prophet is for us, all these great things that God has done for us, but the prophet is also for others. We introduce them to God. We point them to Jesus. We, we shower them with good works of grace. But even in that, we get more profit and blessing. That's the crazy part of God's economy. There's profit for everybody around every corner. And these good works, they're also good for our church. They're good for us collectively because they make a healthy church. A healthy church ultimately is a church that's on mission, making disciples who make other disciples. And when we do good works, we profit as individuals, but our church also profits because it becomes a healthier body. 
a body focused on God's priorities. And primarily, the good works that the book of Titus talks about are for others, for the community, those outside of the faith family. But we can also do good works for each other. We can point each other to God. We can shower each other with blessings and grace. Those are also good works, and they're the right things to do. One of the repeated ideas I've heard over and over in the past few weeks is we need to to build better relationships with each other. That's absolutely true. We can do a much better job of connecting to each other, loving each other well. We can do a better job of loving the people in our valley, but I think it really starts with us being relationally healthy ourselves. I mean, I've pretty much got the market cornered on being an introvert. And so if I can sense that these things are need, then everybody probably is feeling it too, right? So we can all kind of agree that our church needs some, some relational help. The culture needs to, to be tweaked a bit here. And yet it's really interesting because one of the things we're looking for in a lead pastor is a person who's relational, a person who can really take the lead in shaping that kind of a culture, a culture of really building relationships and doing good. But here's the thing. We're like a, a giant cruise ship, a giant boat, and you can't turn a giant boat Quickly, it's a, it's a slow, slow process, right? If you want to steer a giant boat, it's going to take some time. It's not going to be a, a rapid development for us to cr- increase this relational culture. And if we're bringing in a pastor who's highly relational, what's the first thing that he might do? The first thing that he would do is start to create a culture at Trinity that's relational, right? So if we could see our need for that, and we know that the first step of a new pastor would be to kind of create that culture, then why don't we get started turning the cruise ship already, right? That's a good work that we can all start to do. So we can build stronger relationships with each other. We can build stronger relationships in our community. We could take good works into the valley because God has given us so many riches through Christ. He's given us even more than we could ask or imagine. As we wrap up, listen to one more quote from Paul Tripp. He says, Perhaps it's not enough to say that hope is found in God. That surely is true, but more needs to be said. It's not enough to say that reliable hope is hope in Jesus. The message of the Bible is more powerful and pointed than that. Reliable hope is Jesus. In his life, death, and resurrection, your life is infused with hope. The grace of the cross is not just grace that forgives and accepts, but grace that also supplies you with everything you need until you are needy no more. And what does this hope produce, according to this Titus passage? It produces a brand new way of living. I don't have to search for hope any longer. I can now give myself to a life of good works. During this season of introspection for our church, it's good to remind ourselves of where our hope really lies. We don't have to search for hope any longer. That's a trustworthy saying. You can take it to the bank. God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And now we get the chance to take it to the valley, to do good works, not in our own power, not in our own abilities, but just Letting God shine through us, pointing people to him, showering people with grace out there and in here. And we could do all this because we know that God is ultimately in control. God's the one who's done it all. He's the one who still has work to do. So let's just rest in that. Let's keep trusting him. 
Let's pray. God, we want to reaffirm our trust in you. It's easy to lose sight of all that you've done for us. It's easy to forget the, the people that we used to be. It's easy to forget that uh, you've changed us down to the very core. And you've given us uh, a great task, a joyous task, a task of doing good works for each other and for other people. And we want to be a church that's marked by that kind of joyous work, that kind of work that is just us allowing your spirit to work through us, God. I pray that you would make us more and more sensitive to what you'd want to do in us and through us and help us to be uh, surrendered to that and responsive to that in every way, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.